is the Enter Sad Men podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. Welcome to episode 12 of the Enter Sad Men podcast. The only hard rock heavy metal show that reviews and rates and ranks rock's greatest albums to create the definitive hard rock and heavy metal hall of fame. We're on Spotify, we're on Apple, we're on Google, and we're on Podbean. We're on Twitter, we're on Facebook. You can uh, follow us at, uh, at Enter Sad Men. And uh, we've got our own website as well that gives you all of the details of the episodes we've done and the albums we've rated and the all-important Hall of Fame. And that's at www.entersadmen.co.uk. And you can also send us comments and questions uh, and thoughts, uh, and it would be great to hear from you. So here we are ready to do episode 12. More about that in a minute, but uh, let's just do a quick recap of last week. Uh, I'm Richard uh, with uh, my friends Mark and Steve. Uh, And last week, uh, we uh, decided we would rewind back to 1980 and the founding year of the new wave of British heavy metal. And we reviewed Diamond Heads, Lightning to the Nations, White Snakes, Ready and Willing. And we reviewed Motorhead's Ace of Spades. So, guys, any uh, reflections on uh, where we got to last week? Diamond had made the top three, didn't they? Um, Which I think was absolutely right, actually. They're such a such a, an influential band in the history of the music that uh, they were always going to be there or thereabouts. Um, all three albums in the top 20, which is kind of where you'd expect them. I doubt Ace of Spades will be in the top 20 when we're done and dusted with this, if we ever are. And I think, you know, Ready and Willing might might struggle to stay in there as well, even though they're at number 13 now. You'd have to say, though, given, the, given that um, Zeppelin 4, which sits at the top, has got... 8.55 and diamond header i can't remember what the actual score is but 8.3 something it, you, you've got to think that they're, they're reasonably safe for a top 20 place come reckoning day wouldn't you but um yeah i thought it was a good it was a good and interesting uh episode last week an interesting chat or well, steve yeah I, li- I liked it a lot i thought because it had been pretty weird the week before as i recall when you boys disappeared into the crazy world of cuse and tool and um i don't even know if i'm saying cuse right and i do you know what i don't care so last week yeah we were kind of back in our wheelhouse weren't we which was which was lovely you know 80s 80 british rock 40th anniversary um it was just it was just yeah it was it was a good week's music um and our high spirits lifted the scores i'm sure but uh, no no you're absolutely right mark those two ready and willing and um ace of spades will not be anywhere near the top 20 come the end of this because jesus we've got a hat full of good albums to come yet three of which are tonight so um yeah no it was good fun good week but i'm looking forward to this week i have to say i'm really because apart from anything i mean apart from anything else we're back in the 70s um which is good for me but also this is a bit of a special special week really isn't it in in some ways and not in others yeah, so um, we were in an incredibly lucky trio to spend uh, an hour, well, over Zoom at least, in the company of Mr. Brian Tatliff from uh, Diamond Head. And uh, it was he that uh, chose the three albums that we're going to review this week. 
Um, yeah, please do check out the the uh, chat we had with Brian because uh, he was absolutely fantastic. He gave us a, an enormous amount of time. I think let us into quite a few little secrets. I felt, um, and uh, yeah, so um, yeah, thank you, Brian, for again for everything that you did. And uh, God, what a great chat it was, guys! Hey, eh? oh, it was it was great. He's such a gent, isn't he? Really is such a a generous gen- generous man. I mean, you know, gave up an hour of his time, um, you know, just to talk to us about Diamond Head, about life in a band, about um, the role and the part that he's played in how the music has been shaped over the years. And it was just a, I just felt it was a real privilege really to, to just to be able to sit and, and talk to him. And, and hopefully, um, and if you've listened to the podcast, love to have your thoughts about it, but hopefully asked him some questions that maybe he'd not been asked before as well, just to keep it a bit fresher for him. So the three albums then that he chose for us were in chronological order uh, Led Zeppelin's Physical Graffiti and Judas Priest's Sad Wings of Destiny, both recorded and released in 1975. And uh, it is the second and second outing for all of these bands on the Enter Sad Men podcast because making up the trio of albums this week is ACDC with their 1977 release, Let There Be Rock. So, um, yeah, I can't wait. Uh, anyway, for those listening, here's a little snippet of everything. First onto the turntable this evening is, well, it's Physical Graffiti by Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin's second tilt at Enter Sad Men's Hall of Fame, and they've got quite a serious act to follow, given that the one we reviewed in week three, Led Zeppelin 4, now sits atop the pile. So, Rich, take us away with Physical Graffiti. Opening album sleeve notes. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating, I think, um, because, I mean, this is... There are some that rate this as high um, and some higher than uh, than Led Zeppelin 4. So I'm fascinated to see what we all think of this now we've given it some real focus for, for the last week. So, yeah, it was recorded uh, well, in February uh, – uh, no, sorry, in, released, sorry, in, uh, in February 1975, a year after 
it was recorded in Feb 1974. But what I didn't realise until I'd researched was um, uh, some of the tracks had been uh, recorded earlier than 1974. But more about that in a bit. It was also the first album that they released on their own record label, Swan Song, you know, the famous logo that everybody uh, knows and associates with with Led Zeppelin. Um, it was their sixth studio album, though. It was a bit of a whopper, wasn't it? I mean, it it uh, it, it, it clocks in, I think, at about uh, 82, 83 minutes. Uh, obviously needed a, a double vinyl, even, I think, probably a double CD. Uh, when it was when it was on CD, produced by Jimmy Page, uh, as had uh, you know uh, things like House of the Holy before it, U- usual bunch of uh, supporting engineers, uh, and uh, recorded in uh, Headley Grange in Hampshire. So it, really iconic cover and fantastic if you get it on uh, on vinyl. The letters in the windows. Okay, so physical graffiti opens with, uh, in my view, the wonderful custard pie. Um, so this was one of the tracks recorded at Headley Grange in 1974. Um, I think this is brilliant. The, the riff, uh, the da da da, is just uh, it's one of my favourites. Really, really like it. What about you guys? Yeah, I could couldn't agree more. You have to play it very loud to uh, get the full benefits of custard pie. It's I think it's a monstrous opener. Just so damned upbeat. And yeah, the, the inevitable, well, not, I say inevitable, the, the plant harmonica comes in, the page wah-wah, Bonham at his best, at his absolute best. Um, it's just incessant. Yeah, very, very, very impressive opener. Hmm. Mr. Norman. Well. Well, that was earlier than I thought. You know, it's all right. I think the thing about this track is, I, I, I'm listening to you two, I think maybe what have I missed? Because... I, as an opener, I don't get it. I don't get it as an opening track. I think it's quite, I think it has the ability quite clearly to polarise, which is maybe the point. You know, the whole album is is hugely experimental, actually, in all sorts of ways. So why not, I suppose? I, I, I like it. I, I don't, I don't think it's amazing. I like it. I think it's really good. I think, I think, you know, it's a good album. I, I have issues with it and I wouldn't have chosen this to open it if it had been me, but, that's why they're multimillionaires and I'm not. <laughs> but that's fascinating you say that because, I mean, so Black Dog opens four. Yeah. And the, I, I think this is a brilliant opening track. Yeah, I, I think musically, individually, I think it's, re- you know, that clearly it's really technically sophisticated and clever. I personally find it jars slightly, that's, that's all. I think by the time we get to the end of it, I'm kind of with you. But I think as a starting point, I find it I found it quite a difficult listen. But it's a it's a good song, you know. Don't dislike it. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? I think this is one of the strongest songs on the album. Yeah, me too. I haven't I haven't stopped, I haven't stopped tapping my feet yet, and um, I'm I'm looking forward to the rest of the album on the strength of that. If I was playing this for the first time, and then we we get to something that I just think is just majestic. I love the Rover. I think it's an absolutely fantastic song. And if they'd open with this, I'd have probably found um quite easier to get on with. But but for me, uh, the, the other thing, I mean, I suppose we'll get on and talk generally about the album. This this is an album that is that is front loaded for me, very much front loaded. So this was 
uh, an outtake from the Houses of the Holy recording sessions. So uh, they chose not to put it on Houses of the Holy. Is this the first ever deluxe edition of an album? You know, all this stuff around now where uh, bands will bring out these special editions, these deluxe editions that have outtakes and demos from that album or just previous ones. And here's Led Zeppelin. They've recorded essentially what would be, well, I think they recorded enough in 1974 that realised it would fill more than two sides of an album. So rather than just release it as it was or with, you know, on, on, on two discs but with three sides, they decided, did they decide they would fill it? So what I'm fascinated to know as we go through this album is the strength of the 1974 recordings versus the strength of the other stuff that they've added in. They didn't put all of the extra stuff at the end. They actually mixed it in between. You know, the, the fact, fact that, for example, the Rover, um, I, I think if it had appeared on Houses of the Holy, would I think it deserved to appear on Houses of the Holy. But it fits better on this album. I think if you listen to the stuff that was recorded early, I think probably, and I don't know, but I think probably um, the band looked at it and and felt there was more balance with some of the, the material they recorded in 74. And they probably looked at it and went, Do you know what, that all kind of fits together. So let's put that on a, let's save it. And, and you know, it's good stuff. Put it on the next album. So I don't think this would have, I don't think this would have worked on Houses of the Holy. And I don't think there's quite a lot that they brought over from those sessions that I don't think would have added to the balance of, of that album. Mm-hmm. So I wonder whether it was just they looked at it and went, musically, that doesn't fit. Let's let's group them together and put them on something new. Don't know. I, I, that's quite, quite an interesting thought because I, their albums are generally – such a lot of diversity in their albums. It's very hard to say that this wouldn't sit anywhere on Houses of the Holy because anything sits anywhere really with Zeppelin, doesn't it, to a degree. And, and my, my my slight concern with this is it's such a very good track. But then, like Rich, I was a little bit unaware of the history of the album and started looking and, and thought, you know, and then the, the red lights came on and I thought, fuck me, how many outtakes have we got coming up here? How many remixes? How many songs written back in the day that weren't good enough for an album. Am I, am I looking at Reload here? And that was, um, you know, and and as it goes on, so, and that's not being rude because we we love Reload, but we also accept there's a fair bit of weakness on it um, and, I, and, and I'm proved right because, as we know, towards the back end of this album, there's a lot of stuff on there that really shouldn't be on here or some tracks on here that just shouldn't be on here. Okay, so so this brings us, doesn't it, to the nub of the whole thing, which is, Richard, you start off by saying that this album is is deemed to be either, you know, some people say it is as good as, some people say it is better than Zeppelin IV. It is neither of those two things. It is nowhere near as good as Zeppelin IV. The, the reason people say that, I think, is that some of the tracks on this album, with one exception that we will get onto. Are are extraordinary songs, and I think I think a lot of people rate this album. They ignore the actually the shit at the end of it, and they and they they just base a review and their 
whole kind of um, affection and and awe of the album on the front half of it. I think uh, it's it's padding. It is so overblown and so overrated in that sense. The songs that are great are fantastic, absolutely fantastic, and there's some utter dirge on it at the end. I think. Well, no, I think I th- what we know about Led Zeppelin is that from the day they were formed till the day they deceased. They were under an absolute cloud of hype, and that fog never left them from day one. Before they started, the hype had gone with them, with the big deal with Atlantic, before they'd written a bar. So they always had to, they always knew they were ahead of the game. Whatever they put out, shite or good, they were ahead of the game. And I'm not going to criticize list makers because, hell, we're doing one, but just about every rock list from any authority you want to know. And everything we know about one song, one song on this album, it's disproportionately taken it to heights. It really actually doesn't deserve to be. And I think it's a fine album. Like you, I think it's a very good album. I've got one or two shit spots. You've probably got more than me. But it's not a number one or number t- or top ten on any top hundred. And what I love is that that when Richard disagrees with, he looks like he looks like a, an in, an indulging parent listening to his two children having a bit of an argument because he he's got a wry smile on his face, which usually means he doesn't agree with us, Steve. I've seen that look before. I've seen that look before. Wait for my scores. I will withhold judgment at this stage, and let's Ooh. just talk about in my time of dying. So this was uh, one of the 1974 recorded uh, tracks. Again, it's got some great points. If I had a criticism of this track, it's just far too long. It, it, you know, what is it, 10 minutes? 11. Uh, 11. Minutes. 11. Uh, so this has got some fantastic parts, but they're all, they're, there's too much of them. So they, they, they could have created um, a, you know, a song of about, half, about five or six minutes, but with these things, and, and, and I would have given it another point. Because the individual points, I mean, it's just started speeding up now. I mean, this this middle section is absolutely fantastic, and I, yeah, I think it could have been a classic. It just got too long. Right, track four. I've never understood why the fuck isn't such an incredible track, the title track of the album that bears its fucking name. <laughs> I know. What's that all about? This is a phenomenal song. Yeah. It's look, it's look, favorite track on the album for me. Yeah. It is just absolutely beautiful. Were they being clever? Their argument was, I mean, flimmers as it sounds, they said it didn't sit well on the, on the album, but you kind of think, well, if that's the case, don't you just call the album something different? It was an album where they experimented with reggae and and all of these other rhythms. I think it would sit brilliantly. Exactly. I couldn't agree more. It goes back to Steve's point, though, doesn't it? That that the the whole of this band's career was an experiment, a, an amazing experiment. So I said custard pie kind of didn't feel like it was it should be. But you're right, Steve. Why shouldn't it be there? You know, <laughs> yeah, Zeppelin were not exactly you know, the kind of band that we're going to deliver what you, something that was predictable, you know. So I don't, I don't understand that. 
that that's not a that's not rationale for me. That's not you know, it wouldn't sit well on the album. Come on. This is amongst the best songs they've ever done, in my view. It's just wonderful. Steve? Um yeah, I like it a lot. It's that's quite an uncomplicated answer to quite a complicated song, but um yeah, that's there's there's really not much more to say. Okay, so cards on the table, this is my favourite track on the album. Yeah, I was going to say, if the last one got you dancing. Zeppelin described Kashmir as their greatest achievement, the band members. And I just think, how, how can you say that when it preceded by this, which is an amazing composition? It's wonderfully relentless. You just let it roll all over you, don't you? No, I love it. Love this. This, this is, yeah, this is my favourite track on the album. Closely followed by House of the Holy, and I, and I would say for me, there are there are at least four songs, better songs on this album than the next one. Should we get to the next one? Any comments? Yep. No, 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 no. All good. Right, I'm going to shut up now and listen to you two, <laughs> and then give a tirade for ten minutes. Kashmir. Oh, as a drummer, actually, this is one of the simplest Bonham drum tracks to play along to because for this track that they made him not do anything too complicated and just to keep this uh this four beat on it and and then they wanted to lay everything else on top of it i mean but rhythmically for me which is why i love this track it's it's those two riffs uh the da 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 that actually travels over it's really hard to describe. It travels over the steady drum beat, so it, it shifts all the time. It shifts one beat back every track. Um, so I, which is why I think well, certainly I and a lot of people find this track mesmerising because essentially you've got two beats going on at the same time, and then it all breaks out into into the chorus. I, I love I love the strings on it, and and yeah, I I, I think it's fantastic. Still do. It is epic. It is epic. Wow. Wow. Stop. Stop. If you keep going, you're only going to go higher. And Earth's this way, and I'm taking us there, and, and Mark can finish us off. This is a good track. This is a perfectly good track. I'll say it again. This is a perfectly good track. <laughs> That's what we've got here. We've got a perfectly good track. It meanders and it drifts, and I like a track that meanders and drifts, and I like it. I do like it, but I don't buy into the obsession that this is somehow one of Rock's greatest ever tracks. Is it better, for example, um, than The Battle of Evermore? No. Levy? No, not even close. Gallows Pole? I could go on. Uh, Babe, I'm going to leave you. No, 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 absolutely not. This, Richard, is a perfectly good track. It doesn't go anywhere. That's the problem with this track. It doesn't go anywhere. I'm with you, Steve. I don't, I mean, I described this during the week as a plodding dirge. And it is. It is a plodding dirge. It's quite a nice plodding dirge <laughs> to listen to, but it's a plodding dirge. And I don't understand, I really don't understand the complete obsession and uh, and and 
hysteria about it. I was trying to think about all the tr- all the Zeppelin tracks that I would listen to before I listened to this, and I got to it. I got to twenty that I would genuinely prefer to listen to to this song. So I I don't mind listening to it, and I, my issue with it is not that it's a bad song because it's not. I don't think Zeppelin were capable of writing a bad song, but it doesn't go anywhere. It plods along aimlessly. <laughs> just I just get really frustrated with this kind of kind of kneel and bow to the majesty of Kashmir. It's not. It's not a majestic song. It is a, as Steve says, it's a perfectly good song. It's a perfectly good plodding dirge, and I like a good plodding dirge every now and then. A perfectly good plodding dirge. Okay, each to his own. You, you, you two reacting to everyone raving about it. I think what you two do, as you tend to do, is go too much the other way. What you're failing to realise is this song's about a journey. You know, that the, it's about views. It's about mountains. Yeah, they might be on a yak or some mule, but it's about a journey. It's about travel. Um, it's about painting a picture doesn't go anywhere you're on a journey and that, that's that's what it paints for me you argue beautifully and eloquently because of, for the musicality of this track as, as you will do and and you know we absolutely respect your judgment on that but in my defense stargazer was a journey and i didn't particularly like that either so i'm not i'm not being inconsistent with my dislike long journeys anyway that's not, I'm not even going to get into the, the cul-de-sac of trying to compare the journey of a wizard building a tower. <laughs> With a mule ride through, uh, through India and Pakistan. Yeah, I just thought I'd love that grenade in there. Me done. Me done. Yeah, I, I've, I, I haven't scored this song low. I don't, I don't dislike it. I just don't understand. And and maybe that's because I'm not musical. That stuff, the stuff that 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 you find fascinating about it, which I completely respect, Rich, I don't understand that because I I don't play music. I've never been able to play music. My every attempt, and there have been several, at trying to learn to play the guitar have ended with me kind of just throwing the instrument away because I just don't get it. So I don't understand the musicality of this. I, I hear what's in my ears and I think it's all right. It's it's a perfectly <laughs> decent song. But I don't hear all of, I I mean I hear the layers, but for for me, the immigrant song is a is a journey and, and I love it. And it go, but it goes somewhere for me. But this doesn't this doesn't go anywhere. And I I find that you know I I don't find that to be as satisfying as some of the other stuff that this band have, have done. And and I, I genuinely feel that this album is is measured by a lot of people for four or five tracks on it and not as a whole. So my issue with Physical Graffiti is not that it's a bad album, but that it, it is, it's surrounded by that fog of adulation, which I, I think is sometimes blind. I, 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 look, it's what, it's what makes these nights great is, and, and all the nights when we, when we are together, isn't it? But I absolutely get what you mean about the oh wow isn't this fab brigade. So we would have uh, put the uh, the first uh, record back in its sleeve, 
kicked out the other one and stuck that on the turntable. Do you know what? I love what he's doing, what Jimmy Page is doing. This is in the light, people, and Jimmy Page is apparently using a violin bow um, on an acoustic guitar as a backdrop to um, an opening synthesizer solo, and it's all kind of hippie shit, really. I don't quite – I'm still not quite entirely sure how much I like this track. Do do you know what I thought? The the first note I made of this, I thought – this is based on what happened two weeks ago. I just thought, do you know what Led Zeppelin were? They were the tool of their day. They were there was just so many levels of complexity. And in the light is too long, and it's very interesting. Rich? Yeah, I'd agree. I'd agree. Again, lots of movements, just some amazing different pieces. But you, even I, have to concentrate to get through it. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm honest. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Multiple versions of Robert Plant in your ear. I mean, one's enough. So, yeah, I mean, incredibly complex. I mean, so, so this was, again, this, so this was one of those tracks uh, that they did record in, uh, in 1974, Eddie Grange. And I think you're, you, you're bang on with the, with the tool comment because this requires um, you to close your eyes and your full concentration. Otherwise, you just think, oh. I quite like it. It, <laughs> it, it, it. it takes a bit of a while to get going, but I think this is I think this is where Zeppelin are brilliant because they just they've gone completely kind of done a, a hard right turn and disappeared off somewhere else and it's nowhere where you expect them to go now i wouldn't say that that is true of what follows this track necessarily not the, the not necessarily just the track that follows this track but the rest of the album um and i think there i think there's definite missteps along the way but yeah i think this is really interesting and it's one of you know we talked when we did the aor episode about how there are some tracks that whatever you're doing they just make you stop and listen and for me this is one of them that mm. it does it requires yeah, it does. To just yeah, and listen it does. yeah there's so much going on in here it reminds me actually a bit not music not in terms of star but it reminds me of rush in a lot of ways because rush by and large with almost everything they do require you to stop and listen so i think this is a really interesting really interesting song I, I really, I, I really like, I quite like it. Mm. Um, it's a bit where I go, oh God, that, yeah, maybe not. But overall, yeah, thumbs up from me. So not much to say about Bronior. You know, it's, it's their ongoing love affair with that part of the British Isles. Um, it meant quite a lot to John Bonham. It's a perfectly lovely song. So we're now on to uh, Down by the Seaside. So this was... Uh, an outtake, as I understand it, from the Led Zepp four sessions. I didn't know that. And, and actually, I don't think this would have fitted onto Led Zepp four because uh, you know they were away with the uh, the fairies and the wizards. Um, so mm-hmm. sitting on a deck chair wouldn't really have done it, I guess, would it? John Paul Jones said it was one of their better songs. Well, you know, it's pretty. Sizable catalogue, and um, it's an interesting song, and it makes you 
it's almost a little bit whirlitzery for me. It makes you feel like you are actually down by the seaside, yeah. which you know is evocative. But um, again, and another thing we haven't talked about is um, a, a, a massive whiff of plagiarism with this track because they were massive Neil Young fans, and this definitely doffs its hat to some of his oh. stuff. Many, many previous tracks. I'm not criticising them. I'm a Van Halen fan for Christ's sake. I don't mind a cover. But a lot of the stuff earlier on, you know, there was the kind of in my time of dying, you know, that was a gospel track, although I can't imagine that working somewhere in a gospel church, but um, trampled underfoot. Plant said that I'd been inspired inspired by uh, Robert Johnson. Many, many, many more examples of it. And this is another one. But another thing, back in the 70s, this was um, shows how this actually, they used to play this on Radio 1 when Zeppelin never got played on Radio 1. So kind of gives you an impression that it's really not very heavy. Oh, my, oh, my. We've just struck gold. We've reached um, 10 years gone. Robert Plant's look back. It's a lost love, I do believe. This one drifts as well, um, but nowhere near as aimlessly as some of the other ones. Hugely emotional layers. Apparently, it was going to be an instrumental. Thank Christ it's not, because Robert Plant on this track is, well, just outstanding. Absolutely outstanding. I adore this song. I think Led Zeppelin are always amazing when they just dial it back and let the song do the, the heavy lifting, let the melody. Interesting that it was going to be an instrumental because this works because of Plant and the lyrics and the delivery. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful composition. Yeah, it's just brilliant. Just brilliant. So we're on to Miss Number 11, uh, which um, is another outtake uh, from Led Zeppelin 4. Uh, called Night Flight. Where the hell would this have gone on Led Zeppelin 4? I don't know. All, all this says to me is that if it wasn't good enough for Zeppelin 4, what's it doing on here? Yeah, I think it's lovely. I think it's a great song. Just, it, there's no way it's, you'd chew on this into four. I mean, it's, it's, it's a nice, it is a nice, underrated. No Jimmy Page solo, incidentally, which is quite unusual for a rock, one of their rockier songs. But it's interesting, isn't it, that we have less and less to say as the album wears on. Yeah. I think that says quite a lot. Are we really losing anything if we, in terms of the experience, if we lose the last four tracks off this album? And I would, I would venture we don't. Well, I like the next. I do like the Wanton song, but I take that point, Steve. But what I'm saying is, would the the album have been worse for losing the four? No, songs? I, I, I take your point. I absolutely take your point. And I can, funnily enough, I can hear the Wanton song on four. If it were just the 1974 recorded songs, you'd have Custard Pie, followed by My Time of Dying, followed by Trampled Underfoot, then Cashmere, then In the Light, Ten Years Gone, The Wanton Song, and Sick Again. Mm. But you wouldn't have Cashmere, would you? Because they started writing that in 73. Well, yeah, but it was recorded during that session. Yeah, yeah but, but the actual co- com- composition span two years and and it's got bits of different songs essentially it's assembled as many different songs isn't it so strictly speaking if you're talking about when they were written you wouldn't even have cashmere on this that's quite it's quite interesting that you bring up cashmere and the the kind of meticulousness that went into the production and the writing of a track like that when we're listening to the wonton song which is the polar opposite plant always said he much preferred doing these kind of impromptu numbers which is pretty much what this is and he always thought that Zeppelin were better when they didn't overthink and didn't overstructure and didn't overcomplicate. And yet all their 
all their massive hits, you know, all their crowd pleasers are the ones that, um, you know, took forever and a day. I think all that demonstrates is that the band were in a different place to the rest of the you know the rest of the universe, weren't they? Mm-hmm. You know, the, the rest of the universe is going. Can we have more? Can we have some more? Stairway to Heaven, please. Mm, yeah, Jimmy. yeah. And we're and Jimmy's going. Well, no, we can give you the Wanton song because that's yeah. actually a bit fun to do. And I, I think that's that's just evidence of a band that were moving on a completely different plane to the rest of musical civilization. Mm. Okay, well, on to uh, track thirteen, Boogie with Stu. Yeah. Okay. So. I said I would talk about the second half of the album and it is significantly weaker than the first. It's a jam that you could have included as a bit of fun at the end um, as opposed to within the, the, the album itself. I mean, I've enjoyed listening to this, the, the, the second half, but I'll hands up now. Generally, when I listen to physical graffiti, I will put on side one and side two. And thank you very much. And then I'll put it back in the... Uh, final rap. So yeah, and and I and I think that back to your comments earlier. I think p- people were blown away by that that first half. And I think what's lovely again about and refreshing about uh, what we're doing here uh, for for Sad Men is looking at these albums in their entirety and scoring them track by track. And yeah. tracks such as this are not going to help its position in the Hall of Fame. No. But you know that's that's the nature of the beast, isn't it? It's um, you know they're, they're they're probably sitting there listening to this, regretting the decisions they made in 1975. <laughs> this as they sit in their mansions with all of their money. Black country woman, <laughs> just the title. Lady from Dudley. Oh dear. I can't say that seriously. I do like there's a kind of Zeppelin three feel about the start of this, isn't there? I quite like that. Yeah, there is. There's a very, very gallows pole, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, apparently, unreliably tired. I've never seen them live. Wish I had. This used to, when they did play this, it was just absolutely massive. And it was played as a prelude to Bronyor Stump, so, um, which would make sense. But when they did it live and long and loud, apparently it was, it was um, you know, a really good listen. Yeah, we could imagine this kicking off into something. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's fine. It, it's fine. Yeah. I repeat, you could lose it from the album and the album would not be any worse. And so Physical Graffiti finishes with uh, track 15, Sick, again. So this was one of the 1974 recordings. Uh, Black Country Woman was uh, an outtake from Houses of the Holy. I I put on my notes, solid finish. And part part of the problem with Led Zepp, I guess, is, is the bar of expectation and that is exactly it, isn't it? That is exactly it. So they essentially they are victims of their own ability because the moment they don't hit the mark, everyone's disappointed. The, the fact is the vast majority of tracks on this album recorded by another band, you would be slavering over. But because it's Zeppelin, they are seen as, or we are seeing them as slightly underachieving. In, in the context of what they are capable of. So, you know, it's it's difficult, isn't it? Supremely talented band who I absolutely adore. You know, frankly, if they'd released the side one and side two, it would have been a phenomenal album, even with Kashmir on it. <laughs> <laughs> so there we are. 
Physical Graffiti, the first of Brian Tatler's choices for us to review. His favourite album of all time, this album. So, um, you know, and he knew a thing or knows a thing or two about making music. So, sorry, Brian, I didn't like it as much as you did, or as you do, but um, it's still been a, a, a fantastic week of listening. But it is now time to move on to uh we've got a black country woman we're moving on to some black country men and judas priest's sad wings of destiny opening album sleeve notes a month after the release of physical graffiti judas priest entered the fray of 1975 with their new release sad wings of destiny now this is very much a band that sound like they're still trying to find their feet so they had issues with the record company. Um, this was released, I think, on Gull Records. They had no budget. This is a familiar story for the 1970s, isn't it? Bands, heavy metal, hard rock bands trying to record albums on no budget. That's why Paranoid's sitting near the bottom of the Hall of Fame at the moment. Um, but they had no budget. This was the last album they would do for Gull before they signed to CBS. But this is where you can start to hear that twin guitar attack of K.K. Downing and Glenn Tipton. And you get a glimpse on almost every song, with one exception. You get a glimpse of what we are going to get further down the line. And it's quite a long way down the line that we get it, to be fair. But you do get a brief look or a brief sound uh, of what Judas Priest are going to become over the time. Now, for me, I don't know about you two, but for me, I thought this album was absolutely fascinating. And I, I always struggle with early Priest because, because there isn't any rhyme or reason to what they've done on Rockerola and, yeah, and those early albums. But this, there was... Almost, sorry to go poetic on you, but it was almost what, like what, watching a, a little chick hatching from an egg. You saw the wing appear or the or the foot appear, but you didn't get kind of the whole thing. So there's this kind of, you know, glorious nature evolving and blossoming into life on an album. And it's just odd and charming and wonderful and slightly strange and a bit shit all at once. And, you know, I think it's interesting that um, that Brian gave us this one to listen to because because I, I kind of like it, but I'm not sure why I do. What about you two? Hmm. And and then Rob Halford drove over the chick on his motorbike. It's it's our job to impart our wisdom and uh, and educate the children in um, in the wonders of rock from the 70s and 80s. And if you gave if you put in the hands of a young rock fan British Steel in his right hand circa 1980 sad wings of destiny in his left hand circa 1976 four years apart that's not even that's not even a school career four years that's all it is and said name the band and they'd say bands surely and i'm thinking it's unrecognized you said there's glimpses of what was to come the glimpses are very well disguised the twin guitar i get elements of halford's voice which is a journey of exploration in itself you could write a book on um, on Halford's voice on Sad Wings of Destiny, and it would be a very mad book at that. But yeah, this is this like you. I just found it utterly curious, impressive in many ways, a great listen, and you know, ultimately that that's what you want. 
And unfortunately, as I, as I said to you before, it will fare badly in our Hall of Fame because of one gross error, which we will come to later on, which is a shame. It's a, it's a, it's a really, really interesting album. It's always funny when people use the word interesting, but I think it is it's the word to, to, is it the word to describe it. Would I use that word? I've enjoyed listening to it. I really have. Um, and there's some, uh, a couple of tracks I really, really like. I, I, I can, I can recognise its, its priest. As you say, it's, it's massively different to four years later. Uh, I mean, I, I have been looking up what their early influences were. You can almost feel there's almost bits of sort of Led Zeppelin and some of the more progressive rock in here. And uh, they were obviously trying trying different things. Um, and the, the, we'll, we'll get on to the specific songs, but some of the, the way the songs were constructed, you know, I think it's suffice to say they, they did get a bit simpler in their later years in terms of the structure of their song. But I enjoyed it. Yeah, I, 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 and, uh, and thanks again to, to Brian, because um, it would have probably been a while that, until we'd have got round to picking this one. Uh, for one of these episodes, yeah, there are there are other priest albums we would have got to before this, without a doubt, without a doubt. Okay, so should we uh, should we listen through it and um, try to I don't know try to unravel the mysteries of Sad Wings of Destiny, unfold them perhaps. So the album kicks off with um, Victim of Changes. And and you kind of get quite excited, don't you? Because you think uh, this is going to be, this is going to be actually an almost a, a hidden gem. Because I've listened to this album once, I think, and probably didn't pay it much attention because it didn't sound like British Steel. But you know, as you say, Rich, the the process that we go through with this, I, I've listened to this, I think, eight nine times this week, and I, I've it's grown on me every single time. Even the weird stuff. Even the weird stuff, weirdly, yeah. I mean, I don't think it's ever going to make my top ten, no. but but I've had a ball listening to it. Yeah, yeah, I get that. And and the other thing that you can hear in this album is you can hear Glenn Tipton's songwriting starting to come through the melodies, um, which were kind of his hallmark for for Priest's later stuff. The riff on this first track is brilliant, but they're using. Very little distortion. I'm trying to think, yeah, what what this would sound like with the with the the distortion pedals turned up, say, like they would have been on, like they are on on British Steel. And I mean, it's a good enough riff already. It, it, it's a colossal riff. Uh, and yet again, we're back to suffers from the production, doesn't it? Yeah, it's quite thin the production. Yeah, but it could just be that they they weren't sure that they they at the time they were. A rock band, weren't they? And influenced sort of by blues and, and progressive rock. This track is very progressive. We've just got to a very progressive bit of it. And well, I, I just think the way it wanders off and does different things. I'm not going to be crass enough to, to compare it to Zeppelin, but in their own way, this is them experimenting. They just don't have creative freedom, I guess, to do it in quite the same way that Zeppelin did. Greatest of respect, they're not as good musicians either, with the possible exception of Glenn Tipson. Yeah, an interesting and great opening to the album, I think. So how do you follow Victim of Changes? Write a song about Jack the Ripper. That's what you do. Now, the Ripper was a staple in their set. I think it might even still be a staple in their set. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah apparently so, yeah. Why? It is nuts. 
This is nuts. But a good bit of theatre, and you know, there's there's plenty of operatic intent in uh, in Halford in this album anyway. So uh, it fits in snugly. I'm not sure. <laughs> you know, it is what it is. But that that's exactly it, Steve. It's it's operatic, isn't mm. it? It puts me in mind of Warfare's Hammer Horror. Yeah. Which is very, very similar, and that's not necessarily a compliment, I have to say. Yeah. Uh, but there is there is an operatic element to this. Yeah, you know, I, I don't think it's an operatic element that Gilbert and Sullivan were ever going to replicate. But yeah, interesting, interesting song, and I quite like it. Yeah, it's all right. It's not um, it's not the greatest track on the album by quite a long way. But it's almost it's almost they've got the theme, haven't they? They thought right, we'll call it the Ripper. And now everything's got to play to that. Yeah, the, the kind of every little key change is slightly malevolent. You know, everything about it is. You know, can, can you have an onomatopoeic song? I don't know, but it's. Um, you know what I mean? It's just. Um, it just does what it says, doesn't it? From start to finish. You know, you feel scared at the end. I'm not going out. Track number three, Dreamer Deceiver, and and he's gone all Simon and Garfunkel now as Rob, and a little bit of Freddie. A little bit of Freddie, yeah. This is this is definitely him trying to work out, trying to get a style and identity, I think. Yeah. Juxtaposition of where Rob Halford is in 2020 as a vocalist and where he was here, is that, that's quite, that is quite a big jump. What, what slightly confuses me, I, I, I've heard it said that this was Dreamer Deceiver was kind of an intro to Deceiver, which would make sense linguistically, except it's twice as long. Because <laughs> they do segue, don't they? Yeah. It is. It is the prelude, even though yeah. there's a song on here called Prelude. Yeah, it's, it's, it's got a bit of tape, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, I don't know what it's doing really. It, there is, however, and I don't know who does the solos. Do they share them? Because there's a great one at the end of this track. Sixty percent ish of the solos are Tipton. Okay. If it's a melodic solo, yeah. it's definitely Tipton because because okay. KK took the sledgehammer approach to yeah. this guitar work. It, it's fascinating. You need to give this a damn good listen. You really do. When I first listened to this, which would have been, I think, last Tuesday night after after we recorded um, the 1980 episode, I didn't like the album, but I have grown to like it over the week. Side one, so far, so good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Can I, just permission to go off at a tangent. You know, when we ever, whenever we go and see Y&T and we always say, they shouldn't actually be called Y&T anymore. They should be called just Dave Menachetti because no one from Y&T is back there anymore. This is Judas Priest five years after they were formed. There isn't a single original member of Judas Priest in this band. Is there? No. This, no. Is like, this is like Trigger's broom out of Only Fools and Horses. <laughs> <laughs> what a brilliant analogy. Absolutely brilliant analogy. It is. It's Trigger's broom. In fact, I'm going to write to Judas Priest and suggest that their next album is called Trigger's Broom. Victim of Changes was written, strangely enough, by their original vocalist. That's right, yeah. And I, I hadn't clocked until this week that that anyone had preceded Halford. So I didn't even know that there was a, a, a different singer in the band. Yeah. And Al Atkins, wasn't it? Yeah, Al Atkins, mm. which is the least heavy metal name you'll ever hear on this show. <laughs> yeah, that's right, so we're back. We're we're now into um, into Deceiver properly with a proper Judas Priest riff yeah. going on. Nothing wrong with this at all. What too short? Except yeah, too short. I, I I don't I don't understand why didn't they call it something different or just call the first one Dreamer? Yeah, make this one longer. 
Uh, hey, this wouldn't have looked out of place on something like Master of Reality, would it? It's no. really Sabbath-esque. So we come to the song that's called Prelude, even though it's not a prelude to anything that I can work out, at least. And it's, it's a good two and a half minutes, isn't it? So it's... It just it plays to that theatre thing, doesn't it? You've, you've, you've gone off and got your half-time ice cream, then you come back in, and before the curtain rises, there's a little reprise, isn't there? But this piano, this is the opening to Barry Manilow's Mandy. Yeah. Oh, it, it really is. I've listened to both. Oh, okay. I don't get it. I don't, you know. Now, so this is probably my favourite track on the album, even though the way that Halford does the tyrant bit makes him sound like he's about to fall asleep. But this is, this is proper Judas Priest of later years, I think. Yeah, it's a classic riff, isn't it? This is a classic riff. It's, it's, the, it's those comedy harmony vocals, isn't it, that um, you're right, that aside. But but again, you can hear Glenn Tipton now really coming to the fore in the songwriting because this has got him all over it, you know, with that melody running over the riff. Such an odd mix. Such an odd cocktail, this album. It is. And it leaves you not really knowing what you think about it, doesn't it? Mm. It's impossible for me to describe how I feel about this album. Mm. And I've enjoyed listening to it, but I would be very surprised if this time next year this is in the top hundred. I agree. It's their second album. Rob Halford, I think, ends up being the priest, Judas Priest. But yeah, it's really, really fascinating to listen to. Yeah, because there's there's enough on here. You can you can hear the potential here, can't you? Of what what ultimately then followed they followed this up with sin after sin where they really had kind of found their sound which i think i'm right in saying was sin after sin i think was wasn't that produced by roger glover but just as important they'd been signed for columbia by then hadn't they so yeah they rid of this shit label they were with so so they got proper money after this yeah i mean they were they were three albums away at this point from from their breakthrough commercial breakthrough album which was killing machine it was hell bent for leather in the United States, wasn't it? So, um, yeah, this is typical, classic Judas Priest. So that brings us to genocide. And you think it's all going in the right direction now because we've had Tyrant. You know, we're into genocide, which is another fairly standard or what would become standard priest. So, yeah, you kind of, you, you think, okay, this is um, this is really good. And then at the end of this, they take another left turn to what the fuck's Phil. Are you getting a, a purple influence with with this? That kind of yeah. it's that early seventies groove, isn't it? As, as I've got Ian Gillan in my ear now. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a fantastic track. You said that about the production, Mark. It, it, it's 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 not a bad production, very well balanced, but it, it's incredibly clean. And it would have yeah, it, it could have done just a bit more oomph. Yeah, it needed to be fuller and and dirtier. You know, priests are great when they when the production's a bit dirty, and they're also they're, they're also better when the guitars are higher up in the mix. Yeah, this is Epitaph, which is um, when it was remastered and remixed in other countries, it was called shit. Um, <laughs> not a lot of people know that. This is. Halford doing Gather Round the Piano, and as Freddie would, Freddie could pull it off, Rob <laughs> It's an absolute, it's a, it's a musical crime, this. It's, um, you know, send for the ripper, 
just get this heap of shit killed off. And and the worst bit, of, you think it can't get worse than it is as you're listening to it. And you'll think, well, as you're listening to it, you'll think this is absolutely dire. And it is. Until right at the end and his final and you will just, you will laugh your head off. It is just, it's an, it's an abomination there. <laughs> just follow that. <sighs> I don't know why what what it, it it's doing on on the album. Uh, I'll tell you what it's doing on the album. I'll tell you what it's doing on the album. What it's doing on the album is Glenn and Rob have sat round one of their houses having a beer and they've listened to A Night at the Opera and Bohemian Rhapsody's come on. And Glenn's gone, Rob, we need to do something like that. That's what's going on here. Yeah, I did wonder about the Queen influence. It's it doesn't um, work on it doesn't work on any level, does it? It's it just no. you know, no. it's utter waste of space. And I'm really interested in what the band discussion was here. Because I mean, I don't even know actually I I need to find out who wrote who actually wrote this. I assume it was Tipton and um, and Halford. Let's have a look. Tipton, it says, according to what I've got in front of me here. Yeah, it was Tipton. So, I think this is this is a vanity project. This has got vanity project written all over it. Here we go, Steve. Your favourite bit. I'm looking for. I can't wait. Gone all Whitney or Whitney Houston there. <laughs> you got to play it again. <laughs> it's that final fall it's just dire <laughs> anyway which brings us on to the island of abomination no not abomination the island of domination <laughs> although before we, before we move on guys um, obviously everything is relative isn't it uh, and uh, your, your, your choice is epitaph versus gist Disgustipated. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I thought I thought of that in my scoring process, and which is why I gave this two, <laughs> which is which is one more than disgustipated for no other reason that it's it's not as utterly pointless as disgustipated. But yeah, yeah, that that was playing on my mind. And we know what happens when tracks score two. Not a lot to say about Island of Domination. Fairly strong end to the to a. a an interesting album. It's not the strongest album on the, the strongest track on the album, but it's a it's a reasonably solid ending, isn't it? Yeah. You, if you had it on, you'd leave the needle on the record. Yeah. It's it's, it's it's never straight up though, is it? Even even a track like this, you think you're only going one way with this, you, you because we know what we know about Priest, but because this is in fact 1976, it still hasn't quite finished, does it? It does move off in a strange direction, as pretty much everything did, you know. There's a definite welcome back to the 70s moment um, yeah. in the track, as there is with pretty much everything they did. Okay, so um, highs, and, highs and lows. Uh, Steve, start off with you. I, don't, I, I think I know where we're going, all going with the lows. Well, yeah. Richard, might, Just, Richard might love Epitaph, we don't know. No, well, you don't need to know. The high is Deceiver. That's all you need to know. Um, I do like Tyrant. I do like Genocide. Um, I think the openers an absolute blinder but I love Deceiver and I just wish it had been even a minute longer please 
Yeah, Epitaph, let's just discount. I'm trying to think apart from, apart from that. Um, I mean, the, 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 I would say, for me, the rest of the album is pretty much on a, on a level. Uh, it's Tyrant. Uh, I love that. I think, uh, I think that's, that's the, the strong, the strong card in the deck. So there we go. Uh, that is uh, Sour Wings of Destiny, Judas Priest's second album from 1976, um, which brings us to the final uh, final part of the show, which is the album number three. So Brian Tatler from Diamond Head gave us Physical Graffiti to review. He gave us uh, Sad Wings of Destiny to review. And the third and final album that Brian gave us to uh, review in this week's show was the uh, 1977 release from ACDC, which was Let There Be Rock, which puts me in nicely in my wheelhouse. Opening album sleeve notes. It's almost like we're doing this the wrong way around, isn't it? Listeners will know who who isn't an ACDC fan, and Rich and I are massive ACDC fans. We have to doff our flat cap to Mark when it comes to his ACDC worshipfulness, because uh, he's off on a different planet. So it's 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 my privilege to introduce an album that I absolutely know, hand on heart. Mark would have brought into the into the mix at some point. But then again, so would I, because I have no doubt that this is one of my top 10, possibly top five albums of all time, without a shadow of doubt. I think it's ACDC's finest hour by some distance. I think just to, it's ACDC's fourth. There's a really interesting backstory to this, um, It's AC, which we'll come on to. It's ACDC's fourth album, their third to be released internationally, just their second to be released in the United States which therefore made it absolutely critical that they got it right over there. And, you know, it's not overstating the fact to say that this had to work for ACDC. They were at that point in their career where this had to come off because that bloody nose they'd taken by Dirty Deeds being rejected in America, the fact that they'd come over here to try and make their fortune and it hadn't quite worked out, gone back to Australia and the Aussies had said, well, fuck you lot for pissing off to England and they really were, money was tight. They were on a cusp and they had to get it right, Mark, with Let Debbie Rock. And they did, didn't they? Yeah, they absolutely did. They absolutely did. Um, oddly enough, this is not my favourite ACDC album, although it's very close. Um, my favourite is Power Age, um, oddly enough. But uh, we, by the way, are reviewing the original uh, Australian release, which uh, has Crabsody in blue uh, as the second track on side two. In the United States, when this came out, they uh, took Problem Child, which had already been released on Dirty D's Done Dirt Cheap, and they put that um, as track one, side two, therefore robbing uh, America of possibly the finest track one, side two that has ever been recorded. Although, um, uh, those of us who bought the Australian release version, which I did, um, were treated to that uh, privilege and pleasure. Um, th- th- this is almost flawless uh, as now, almost flawless. It is that band at their absolute best. And, you know, I say Power Age is my favourite album. Literally, it- it's a piece of paper between the two for me. So, um 
you know they were right on it for this and and you're right steve they needed to be the out the the, the record label uh, atlantic were already saying not sure we want to hang on to you you've got lots of pressure going on and that would spill over for highway to hell actually lots of pressure going on at atlantic's headquarters in new york with the band's manager um Michael Browning being told that you know if if they didn't get it right in uh, for uh, Highway to Hell that that would be that the band would would be dropped and they were on the verge of being dropped for this so yeah the the stakes were sky high for this and you're right they they absolutely delivered Richard it's fantastic album where does it sit in my ACDC top whatever um, it's, it's not one two. Uh, or maybe three. And we're off. And and the only problem with doing what we do is that we listen to the music as we talk it through. So I now have to talk while Go Down has started. And you can't believe how difficult that is to do because in my head, well, not just in my head, I, I, I asked the question when, when we did Highway to Hell, which we did in episode, whichever one it was, how many tracks from Highway to Hell you boys would put on your best of ACDC compilation. And I told you the answer, it was one. And we had an argument inevitably, but I told you the correct answer. On Let There Be Rock, there are four tracks that go onto on any any ACDC compilation, and that's a 12-track compilation album. There are four tracks from Let There Be Rock that go onto it, starting with the opener, which is Go Down, which is just off the scale as a track i just i just cannot get enough of this hook they knew as we've explained before they knew that because of the production issues with dirty d's which was one of the reasons why they've been fucked over in america they've got it wrong they had to they had to come out fighting in the studio and and what they had to do was just get bigger more in your face head melting from the off and hey presto i mean Job done. Mark, I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm going to listen now. Your turn. <laughs> well, I think Matt Lang uh, um, paid them the ultimate compliment, didn't he? He said, <clears throat> of all the previous albums that ACDC had done before he arrived to do um, Highway to Hell, that this was the one that he would have loved to have got his hands on. This um, this track is just... Talk about relentless um, riff. And... You can't not move. You got that the whole album. You can't you can't sit still for this album. Yeah. Um, the subject matter is exactly the same. Compare sucking my love to go down. And this is clever. I mean, I love sucking my love, Diamond Head. And, and yeah, it's nine and a half minutes of, of pure genius, and I could listen to it for 20 minutes. But this is cleverer and funnier. And also, I can listen to this for 20 minutes, and I can also listen to pretty much every track on this album for 20 minutes because it's just got that infectiousness about it. And the, the, the interesting thing about it is it, it's, it's Vander and Young at the controls again. They're that side of the glass again. What have they done different? Rich, you're my man in these technical moments. What have they done differently this time that has elevated Let There Be Rock from what Dirty Deeds was, which was fantastic. Well, why has this just come and smacked me squarely in the temple? Oh, well, there's there's balance, there's power, and this particular—I mean, this track's a fine example—but this really captures them live. 
re- it, 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 you could we, we talk a bit about um, yeah whether we listen to these things through headphones or through speakers but but either way with this album and this song you feel like you're in the studio with them that that, that for me is that what they capture on the production and I, get, and I get the sense that when they went into the studio this time, and I don't know whether it was different previous times, I just get the sense that when they went into the studio for this album, they treated it like a live set. And, and we all we know, we've seen these boys so many times. Live, they are incomparable. They are peerless. There is no better act than ACDC live back in the day. And if they're recreating that in the studio, you're only going to get one outcome, surely, which is, you know, gold, liquid gold. But they're egging each other on. You can, you can tell in this album. You can imagine them, them eyeballing each other, saying, yeah. on, go on, go on. Yeah. They are helped by the fact that track for track, they've got far better songs on this album than on Dirty Deeds. You know, th- this album has my favourite ever ACDC track on, uh, song on it. But, you know, you haven't got those, I love Ride On, it's not really an ACDC song in that sense. I mean, I love it. I think it's an amazing song in all sorts of ways. Um, but you haven't got the curios like um, Big Balls and, you know, there's going to be some rocking, which is kind of a bit of a sort of a barroom hoedown kind of. So I think I think they had a lot more consistency in the songwriting. It's it's a straight-up, full-on rock and roll album, this and, and that's what they capture. It's also worth pointing out as we wander into Dog Eat Dog that this isn't quite yet their classic lineup, is it? We've still got um, we've got Mark Evans on bass. I always love what they say about Mark Evans is that he was he was too nice to be in ACDC. <laughs> well, Cliff Williams is is I mean that, that was a godlike lineup, but Evans was a fantastic bass player. No, no two ways about it. They parted company with Mark Evans because of musical differences and I think his relationship with Angus Young had deteriorated to a point where they couldn't work with each other anymore. Um and you're right, you know, Cliff Williams was a fabulous replacement. I often wonder how Mark Evans must feel, kind of looking back and thinking, ah, so close. I know. So close to being part of something absolutely massive. Yeah. But he was part of something very special with this album anyway. Yeah. 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 He had that on his resume. Um, dog eat dog, Rich. I'm with you, Steve. Around, I think you know there are four standout tracks on this album. I'd, I'd be interesting to see if they're the same four. Yeah, this is this is a solid second track for me. This is um, Bon Scott a lot angrier, isn't it? I, I think he knew he knew personally the pressure was on him. I think again going back to Dirty Deeds in America because they'd also criticised his voice, hadn't they? They'd questioned whether he had the voice. He was no Springsteen. Um, who was just arriving on the scene. There's an edge to Scott. I so said, there's no doubt that Dog Eat Dog is a fuck you to the label. Talk about confidence, you know, when you put Let There Be Rock on third rather than closing out the album with it. Well, I was thinking, yeah, I was thinking, I, I've never even thought about the wrong way round, but it's it shouldn't be before Bad Boy Boogie. It should at least close off side one. It's it's a tiny quibble, but um, you know, let's face it, let there be rock could go anywhere on this album. So this is this is basically a three part song. It's got a verse, a chorus, and a solo, followed by a verse, a chorus, and a solo, followed by a verse, a chorus, and a solo. Oh, it sounds so simple. It's also one of the world's greatest blues rock tracks. It's it's an epic biblical journey and 
the the best way to put this is just molten rock, just awesome. It's just rock and roll. It's it's just the the groove to it. The Mark's gonna Mark's now gonna fall asleep in his chair because um, obviously I'm going to talk about upbeats. This song gets you bouncing because of how the young brothers are hitting their notes and it's brilliant. But listen to Mark Evans' bass through this. This yeah. is yeah. Yeah, you know, he he deserves an awful lot of credit on this. Album. Yeah, him and him and Rudd when they're talking when they're talking it through those those choruses, the, the verses. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. And also, of course, I mean, we know, but it's worth pointing out, Malcolm Young. You know, the the glue that holds this bitch together. I mean, Mister Rhythm. Do we mention the video? It's one of my favourite videos of Bon Scott. Dressed as a vicar at an altar, and beneath him, all of the rest of the band dressed as choir boys, and Angus has got a halo on. So earlier on in the show, we were talking about cashmere, and and I said it's it doesn't go anywhere. You know, it just it 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 moves along at the same pace. And you were talking about you know it's telling a story about a journey and what have you. This goes somewhere. This absolutely goes somewhere, yeah, uh, yeah. And I think, yeah, this is the this is this is kind of frenetically brilliant, yeah. isn't it? And your mind's going back to when you saw them live, and you know what's going on, you know, and and and, and you're worn out. You're absolutely knackered. I mean, listen to this for ten minutes or so. This is them live. This is what. This is how they end the song on, in the show. You know that this kind of crescendo. So you're right. They brought the live act into the studio for this. I think without doubt. So I love Bad Boy Boogie. So this song, it, it's it's good. It's a good song. For me, it's solid. It's an okay finish to side one for me. Um, and particularly after the previous song, which is just immense, it's fine. It's always in a pale in comparison following that. That's why it should have gone through. It should have been the other way around, 3-4, not 4-3. But um, the way this, way the, this breaks back is just phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. So it does it once. Let Liberty Rock did it how many times? <laughs> <laughs> Still love it. Don't give a shit what you say. <laughs> right. So on the original release of Let There Be Rock, Overdose Open Side Two. On the other versions that were released, it was swapped out with Prob- Problem Child which had already been on Dirty Deeds. But this is the proper release. It's Overdose, starting side two. It's, well, no, you guys go, because I've got, I've got, you know. I've got, I I could talk all night. I don't want to, because I want to listen to it. But this is, you know, there there are those tracks that you can stick at Spinal Tap 11 or play them at one. It's an either or. There are very few tracks that are so malleable that you can play them fucking loud or beautifully soft. This is one of those bands. The first time, well, I heard the album, well, I saw them live in 1980, but I didn't really get to grips with Overdose until uh, our first sad night when we all get together and play music and talk shit, the three of us. And Mark put it on later in the night, and that was an opportunity to just chill out with one of the most beautiful, glorious songs. And, and I'd just completely forgotten what piece of wonderment um it really was 
Scott's Bon Scott's voice, the whole track, Bon Scott's voice. It's the pain and the melancholy, and I, 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 I've, I'm, I'm running out of things to say. I'm just going to stop. I love it. I adore it, and it's another one that could last for twenty minutes. Uh, this could last for five days, and I wouldn't get bored with it. This is this is hands down my favourite ACDC song of all time. It's the start. It was one take. You know, yeah, it's the the way this song builds, uh, and that that's what they were so clever about. As, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, you know, the reason why I love Highway to Hell so much is is those builds from the songs. But this is just absolutely phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. This is so simple. This whole album is so simple, and and if ACDC prove anything at all. It is that simplicity is genius and you can enhance simplicity just with tiny flourishes of complexity, which is what this track does. The lead breaks on it are, are just a, a little susan of, of complexity on an otherwise relentlessly simple bed of music. And it's just, it is absolutely perfect. And a hidden gem. I mean, relatively, it's not uh, you know not one of their not one of their established power. I, I don't think I ever saw them do it live. I'm sure they would have done. But no, I've never seen them do it live. No, more's the pity. You've, you've seen them thousands of times. No, oh, well, yeah, I wish they had. Crumbs. Yeah, it's pretty much as uh, close as Bond gets to a love song as well, isn't it? Really? Yeah. Oh, you feel his pain. You feel it. You feel the man's pain. He'd be, he'd be, you got three. You got three guests. Three celebrity guests for dinner. I mean, I've always said Hitler, Bon Scott, Robin Williams. It would just be the night of all nights. Yes, it would. And so it 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 kind of winds down and then it just winds straight back up again. It's just it's just brilliant. It's what they do best. I'll tell you something. Choosing a low point on this album's bloody tough. Although I get the impression we've we've been through Richards. So we're concerned with the original Aussie version of the album, okay? So no problem, child. We have instead Crabsody in Blue, which just stinks of the blues. It's not a well-known track for very obvious reasons. I just I kind of don't understand why it wasn't on the international version of Let There Be Rock, although apparently it was right at the start. It was pulled very early on grounds of taste, like you'd pull an ACDC song on the grounds of taste. Did, did they never hear the Jack? And But this is Crabs of the In Blue. You think, well, it, it can't be about that, can it? And, well, it is, yeah. It's about having crabs. So you get wonderful lyrics like, and you start to scratch when they start to hatch, walking sideways, sideway walking, give me the blues. Uh, <laughs> it's just... It's just wickedness. It's just it's just wicked, wicked, and a great song. And and other gems that you just wouldn't get away with now as well. Like um, when they start to itch, it's time to take the bitch to an appointment. She's <laughs> just just brilliant. All right, so maybe I do understand why it was pulled. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're not we're not con- we're not condoning this in any way. By the way, people, okay. No hate mail. We're just, you know, it's a monument in time. We're purely 
recognising that it was there. But it's a track that so few people will know, and that's a shame. And that is it. And that is a shame. God bless him. God rest his soul. Absolutely. Oh, definitely. It's all right. It's got funny lyrics. It's a blues song. It's a good blues song, no? It's all right. Against the company it's keeping, mm. it's... Yeah, yeah. No, I get that. We get that. In the album for me. Yeah, it's funny. But we, we, if we're judging the songs, you know, it's... Would you say that the label was right to replace it then? Yes and no. I don't think it's good enough to appear on the album. It could have been uh, a track shorter, but not replace it with a track they'd already done, because I think that's cheating. Yeah, yeah, no, I get that. I agree. Yeah, definitely. So, Hell Ain't a Bad Place to Be. Rich is talking about the company these songs are keeping, and I like this song, but in the company it's keeping, <laughs> it's, a, it's a perfectly acceptable penultimate track. But I am looking forward to the ultimate track right now. I like this song. Again, it's just a it's just a fantastic beat. Do you know what I I used to think that? I used to think that. I used to think it was all right. And um and I heard it quite recently in the last probably eight eight or nine months. And I put this album on. And actually I I think it's more than that. I think when you sit down, you really give it time because it, it, it is, I get that it, it can, because it, it did for me, I can, I get that it, it's a bit of wallpaper between, you know, well, on the, on the uh, international release, there's a bit of wallpaper between two of the greatest rock songs ever, ever written. So, you know, it was always going to suffer, wasn't it? But I, just, I, I really like the way that this is constructed. I like the way Bond sings it and, yeah, it's. I think it's. I think it's an easy song to write off. It's a perfectly good track. Perfectly good. Yeah. <laughs> it's never going to be the strongest track on the album. You're absolutely right. So we've got, you know, we've got Go Down, we've got Let There Be Rock, we've got Overdose, we've got Hollow Rosie. So I'm kind of comparing it to Dog Eat Dog, and I would put it above Dog Eat Dog. Yeah, I'm with you on that. That's where I, I'm at. So not not as big as the skyscrapers on this album it's a great song and yet it has been ever present in their live set since this album's released yeah that's right yeah to get away with this just priceless i mean the blokes had a fling with a bird a fat bird in tasmania and it's gone global that evening has gone global priceless well they say write about your experiences and and you know Bless him, he's done that, and and not painting her in the greatest light. He clearly had a very good night, and um, you know, and it's and it's now immortalised in song. I don't know. I think he he paint, painted her in a an amazing light, didn't he? There was an interview with him where he said, you know, that she she did wave from across the other side of the road, and he said, you know, she was too good to say no to. And when they did it live, when they did the big inflatable Rosie live. First time you saw that, I mean, that was just gold dust. They don't do subtlety, this band, and and anybody who expects it to be subtle, you know, if there are people listening to this going, oh, well, yeah, it's a complete, a, a complete uh, exploitation of women, and uh, you just go, you're listening to the wrong band. Just go and listen to something else. But you know, a lot of what a lot of most of what Bond wrote about was was autobiographical. It was stuff that had happened to him. You know. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, yeah. 
yeah, no, it's um, priceless. What the, the story I like about this is that apparently when they were recording this, Angus's amp started blowing up and smoke coming everywhere, sparks flying from behind the screens. They were saying, you know, keep going, just keep going. You've got this is so nailed, just fucking, it's nailed, boys. I guess at that point you just thought, yeah, this is this is perfection. So highs and lows. Well, I know where my high is. I think that's probably where everyone's high is, isn't it? I don't know. Steve. Yeah, I've got I've got three tens, and um, if I was separating them, it would be overdose. And yeah, I think tough. Yeah, it's Crabsody and Blue. I love it. I love them all. And it's going to finish. It's going to be the you know the low point with a score of seven or something. So that's how good it is. That would be mine, Richard. Yeah, Crabsteed in blue obviously is my low point. This is the hardest. It's hard to call in terms of a high point. I'm sitting here looking at my scores, thinking, right, okay, you can only take one to a desert island. I overdosed. I think. I think if there's one of these that I would just thoroughly enjoy listening to for the rest of my life probably overdone okay well i think i'm with you guys i said i said on on the chat didn't i earlier this week that the international version of the album was a better album for having problem child on it rather than crabstein blue so i'm sticking with that crabstein blue would be my not so high point i love the whole album i love that song but it is you know it is in the company it's in um that for me is the low point and yeah frankly you could put overdose on now and play it continuously for the rest of my life and i am absolutely convinced i wouldn't get bored with it overdose it is um that is one of um more than 110 on this album for me as well so i think that concludes our odyssey through brian tatler's record collection um thank you brian for the privilege of being able to put your name to this episode um and these albums it's been absolute joy we now need to rate and rank them which we will do reviews complete initializing rating process brian tatler has kindly invited our views on three albums that he chose we've uh, spoken about them at length and uh, the scores are now in so uh We'll do it in the order that we did it, um, which was, and we kicked off with Led Zeppelin and their epic physical graffiti in 1975. We'll start with me, my marks for it. Um, I gave it a grand total of 7.433. Mark gave it 7.266666 and lots of sixes. Um, And Rich topped the pile, and we thought he would, given that he liked Kashmir a lot more than we did. Um, with 7.8 for a final score of 7.5 chaps that pretty much underlines what we, we sort of said didn't we? so you and i said steve which is that this is not close to um their fourth album zeppelin four um but but you can't anyway you can't argue with a 7.5 I mean, that's still a pretty high score isn't it yeah, well, there's a lot. Of, there's a lot of tracks on. You know, it being a double album, there's there's room for error with a 15 track album, isn't there? And you know, there, there were no obvious glaring errors in there. But you know, it doesn't take. It just takes a couple of modest tracks, and that score's going to you know drop down a bit, isn't it? So yeah, seven and a half, good score. Yeah, if you look down the bottom there, um, Richard, you know, you you can pick this up, but 
you look down the bottom and it, you know, there's a there's a story there to be told, isn't there, with the back end of the album? Yeah, I mean, looking at I mean Led Zeppelin four, we, we, there was a, I mean, there, there were three outstanding tracks there for us. I think we gave them a combined nine and a ten and a nine and a half or something like that. But um, here we, you know, the three some big big scoring tracks, you know, eight, eight and a halves and stuff. But yeah, you can see in our, in our scores how it how it fades a bit, particularly with Boogie with Stu and, and Black Country Woman. Uh, and I mean, actually, you know, our scores are pretty are pretty consistent uh, throughout. Yeah, and any perceived lukewarmth about Kashmir isn't doesn't actually manifest itself in the scores, does it? So we all said it was a good track, just that we weren't eulogising it, Mark. You and I, in, in quite the same way, but it's you know it's averaged out to eight point five, which by any measure is a is a is a seriously strong track, isn't it? Interesting score for physical graffiti. You know, I, I, I'm kind of thinking that there are probably um, lots of kind of Led Zeppelin diehards shouting at shouting at their phones or you know laptops or whatever they're listening to this on. But you know, it is what it is. That's what we thought. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And anyway, Mr. T came up next with um, some of his. Midlands Chums, Judas Priest, um, and their 75 um, album, Sad Wings. Their second album, Mark, Sad Wings of Destiny. And the scores, going up from the bottom, it was never quite going to do physical graffiti, was it? So um, 6.5 and lots of fives from Rich, 6.8 and lots of eights from me, and uh, Mark Mark liked it best of all with um, the best part of 7.2 for... um, for a final score of a sh- fraction under six point nine, the, the track that really pulled it down was was Epitaph that we all scored um, very low. If you took that out, it would actually put the score up probably collectively above above seven, which feels like a, yeah around where it where it should be. Yeah, I mean, th- th- them's them's the rules we play by, aren't they? Um, you know, we, we look at every track, we listen to every track, and we score every track. And um, you know, if, if you're going to put some piss piece of piano on it, um, then you, you're going to you're going to wind up with a low score, unfortunately. But say la vie. Yeah, I mean, how many albums are there out there where you go? Do you know what? If it hadn't been for insert name of track here, that would have been an outstanding album. There are lots of them around, and this is just one. Yeah, well, and we move on to the final album that Brian's had, and there's a similar question to be asked, although probably not quite with the same sort of sense of gulf between tracks, but it's ACDC's Let There Be Rock um, from 77 was the final album that Brian Tatley gave us, and we went for um, the original version, um, which had Crabsody in blue on it instead of Problem Child. Now, how would we have scored it with Problem Child and without Crabsody in blue, which is, of course, the album we generally tend to know? But as I say, as we did it with Crabsody in Blue, and the scores were um, 8.18 from Rich, 8.25 from me, um, and no surprise from Mark, 8.525, our Uber ACDC fan, uh, for a total score of 8.32, um, which is yeah, it's impressive in any language. But it'd be interesting, to, that, that problem child conundrum, Mark, we can't address it because we haven't, but it'd be, would it have scored higher? I think it probably would, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, if I look at what I've scored um Crabsty and Blue, I gave that 6.9, which is possibly generous. And I, I would have, problem child for me would have been at least another two points um, on top of that. So, yeah, it would have it would have done a lot better, wouldn't it? Okay, so th- th- those are the scores. So it, it is in the Hall of Fame and it is where it is. Uh, Mark, do you want to talk us through um, where those three albums wound up? 
It's time to put the rock in a hard place. Opening the Hall of Fame. So uh, in reverse order of, uh, of entry, Judas Priest uh, entered the Hall of Fame at number 32. It won't stay there. I don't think. I don't. It's not good enough to stay there when when we get down to the kind of the nitty gritty of the top hundred. But um, that's not bad. It puts it above uh, Vixen's uh, debut, uh, and also uh, perhaps unsurprisingly above Tool uh, Tool's Undertow, and also Ingrid Malmsteen's Rising Force, that epic album Odyssey, and Caius's Blues for the Red Sun. That's not bad, you know, uh, uh, second album, as I say, hugely experimental. Next in was Physical Graffiti, uh, which um, (laughs) sentences you never thought you'd hear hear yourself say. Uh, It's coming at equal 19th with Flotsam and Jetsam, Jetsam's Doomsday for the Deceiver, which is great actually, because in their own way, you know, this is not a this is not about whether that the albums side by side are uh, are better, worse, or you know, indifferent to each other. This is about on their own merits. How what do they score? And actually, the process has put Zeppelin in at nineteen, equal terms of Flotsam and Jetsam, and yes, yeah, ACDC, uh, Let There Be Rock. That kind of that problem child problem is the difference between six full places. So with problem child, it would have come in at the top of the pile as it is with Crampsey in blue. It comes in at number seven. Uh, so stuck between moving pictures from Rush and Van Halen's women and children first. What um, views, chaps? Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I'm a physical graffiti, as we said, is, you know, top one, top five, top ten in so many lists but based on the way that, that we have scored it, I, I find it disappointing given that I like it so much that it's down in 19th. But I can't disagree that some of those tracks are fillers. But that's the nature of it, isn't it? You know, you can love an album without loving all of it. Hmm. Yeah. You know, it, can be, it can be really special to you for maybe half a dozen tracks, which for me, you know, if... if Physical Graffiti had stopped at the end of, if it had been a con- conventional, just single album, two sides, that would probably be up near the top, wouldn't it? But as it is, you know, in my view, they've padded it out to four sides. And, and and you know, they've, the, the quality has diminished, you know, in line with the, so the time that the album goes on. So it is what it is. Yeah, and then as for Sad Wings of Destiny, I would, I would, I would imagine without knowing anything about Rock and Roller that it's the um, that that will be the lowest placed Judas Priest album by quite some distance. And as for Let There Be Rock, yeah, it's um, yeah, any album that scores four tens is going to be right up there. We knew it would be, and I'd be. I know you say, you've always claimed your favourite album is Power Is Mark, haven't you? I still I'd, I'd be surprised if if an ACDC album does trump that, although we've still got inevitably going to be talking about Back in Black at some point and Powerage. Oh, it it's where it should be. And, yeah, I agree with you, Steve. I think there's only one album probably that that's likely to give it a run for its money. Mm. It's fascinating all this, isn't it? Because we're just watching this unfold. It's absolutely brilliant. I mean, we knew the cream would rise at the top. We know what we like and the kind of stuff we like. So we kind of had a sense of, you know, the kind of albums that would be up there. But just watching this league table unfold is, I think it's riveting. So on the WhatsApp group, we'll talk very kind of generically about the albums that we're listening to. But I genuinely, when when we get to this ev- these evenings, I genuinely have no idea how you two are going to score them. So it's it's always a surprise to me. It's fascinating. So 
that's we are now 36 albums deep into this so we uh we need to close the doors on the hall of fame for this week and uh come back to what albums 37 38 and 39 will be next week what should we do next week then well, we've been talking so we haven't done uh, much face paint to date i don't think so we thought didn't we that uh, next week's should be about makeup good okay so next week we're going to wake up with makeup so there we go that brings us to the end of uh, our week of homework from brian tatler uh, from diamond head who was kind enough to give up his time not all that long ago and talk to us about life in diamond head life in rock and roll and his 10 favorite albums and the three of those that he wanted us to review on the show um next week as we've said uh, we are going for some makeup, rock and roll. God only knows what we're going to turn up with in seven days' time, but I'm going to look forward to um, to finding out. So with that, um, we'll see you all next week. <laughs>